Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We discuss our top 50 drivers of the year and explain the thinking behind our more contentious rankings. Every year, Autosport compiles its top 50 drivers of the past season. This draws in drivers from every form of motorsport covered by Autosport and is always controversial. Every year, it becomes a bigger talking point on social media, and it's actually grown beyond recognition since we first ran it way back in 2002 in a much more offline world. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and unlike last year when I oversaw the creation of the top 50, I've merely been one of those who contributed to it. That job instead fell to two people, both confusingly called Matt. So first up, it's Matt Beer. And I think you have the distinction of being the first podcast guest to come in in a flashing Christmas jumper. Well, given that for my podcast debut, I wore the same shirt I wore for my wedding, I'm very keen on maximising the visual possibilities of the podcast medium. So next time it's going to be an absolutely outlandish hat. Yeah, an outlandish hat would be good. I should To paint a picture, it's, it's a flashing penguin. Which means it makes it sound like it's being a bit inappropriate. Is it a penguin in a Christmas jumper as well? It's oh. uh, it's got sort of penguin trousers on, so there's nothing underneath its Santa jacket. So there's nothing inappropriate. Well, that's uh, that's it's a, a family-friendly penguin. 
that's a positive thing. We like that on the uh, podcast. It's a family-friendly podcast, of course. Now, next up, we have the second Matt, which is Matt Q. This is your first full appearance on the Autosport podcast. We did chat to you not long ago when Dan Tictum had his McLaren test for winning the McLaren Autosport BRDC award. Are you raring to go on your first podcast start? Well, hello, Ed, and uh, thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Long-time listener, first time uh, first time here in the office not doing a, a full podcast, so... Let's hope I don't hesitate too much or repeat myself or just end up swearing when I've trapped myself in a corner. You've basically managed to combine sycophancy with managing expectations about your upcoming performance. So that's that's very good. Very, very promising. Something for the other guests to, to live up to. Now, my final guest is Jack Cousins, touring car nerd, as he was just described by one of our colleagues, and also a contributor to the top 50. Now, fans of the Autosport podcast will be familiar with Karin Chandok's appearances, accompanied by cake, carrot cake on a good day. Given you're the scion of a family of bagel entrepreneurs, I'm a little concerned you come here empty-handed. Well, Ed, we're going we're gonna to have to see whether you've been a good boy this year, aren't we? Um, and I think, as the saying goes, great bagels come to those who wait. So. After, after last night's autosport Christmas party, I think bagels would have been very much appreciated. It's been, a, it's been a long time since you produced bagels. For, I remember you producing bagels for us when we were travelling to Le Mans early one morning a few years ago. Uh, that, that was my mum's decision, actually. So you have her to... Her to thank. So basically, you're you're a bit of a bagel letdown. Uh, to, yeah, to yeah. I I conned my way into a job by promising bagels that have never been delivered. This is terrible. Very, very, very disappointing. It's a good job this isn't the top fifty bagel producers, or uh, you you would do very badly com- compared to some of the rest of your family. Well, let's actually get on with it, Matt Hugh. There's often a bit of misunderstanding about what the top fifty actually is. So, can you briefly explain exactly exactly what it is and what it's attempting to rank, what it isn't? And what's at the heart sometimes of the misunderstandings people have about it? As as you said when we began the podcast, it's run since 2002 and this is the top 50 drivers of the year. And that's the main distinction to make. It's not the top 50 drivers in the planet. Otherwise, you know, there'd be advocates for having Jacques Villeneuve in there potentially. Or, Would there? Or, or Glenn Freeman in the office. It was the first one I felt to. He's a default driver. Either that or Kevin, Nick Tandy. So we, uh, we yeah, run through and it's basically their achievements over the last 12 months, which is why... Uh, in this year's list, we've got a, a re-entry at position three because it's not about what they've done overall or their career progression. It's purely based on what they've done this year. And, and it is an important distinction because every year we get, how can you say X is better than Y? And you think, well, it's not quite that. It's about it's about their season and the level they've competed at and what they've achieved relative to expectations, all sorts of things. So it's a complicated equation. And talking of a complicated equation, Matt Beer, the, the, the top 50 started with a blank sheet of paper a few months ago. How did you go about building it into the final list, which, of course, is in Autosport Mag, which is available now. It's on autosport.com. I'm sure people have seen comments on Twitter, Facebook, and whatever their social media of choice is. So our starting point was to go to all the series correspondents who have covered these drivers in the paddock through the year. And we went to them and basically said, who would you nominate from your paddock to be in the top 50 this year? Gave them some guidelines by reminding them of what last year's top 50 was and where their drivers ranked in that. And basically said, who would you like in the top 50? And do you rate them in kind of top 10 in the world this year, 40 to 50, that kind of thing? Um, Inevitably, everyone came back either saying, all my drivers are brilliant, they should all be top 10, or all my drivers are quite good and should be sort of 45th. And so we then had to kind of close the list up in the middle, which had some unusual 25th, 26th type people in the first draft. Um, We used that to compile the long list, at which point it was a top 65 based on the series experts recommendations basically 
And then we then sent that, that long list of 65 drivers in their draft order around, I think, 27 journalists across Autosport, Motorsport News, F1 Racing and Motorsport.com and all the other sister titles we've probably got now and uh, asked for, for their feedback on that top 65 and tried to turn it into something a bit more democratic from that. Factored in people's strong arguments. A lot of drivers moved up and down quite wildly at that point. Some plunged from top 30 to out completely. Um, that allowed us to pull together a slightly more definitive top 50, which we then sent back to those 27 people for final thoughts. And quite a few people at that stage came back and said things like, that's a really solid list. We actually agree with this, which was a humongous relief at that point. Cause I hope I, I didn't say that. I think you sent abuse. Very likely. Very yeah. likely. Um, this so is all wrong. People did send abuse. We had some people very passionately advocating their, the drivers from their championships back up the field. And we had some people... Probably some people you might not expect who are very passionate experts on their genre saying, actually, my series probably doesn't need to be that high up. My driver should come down a little bit. We did a few more tweaks. And then uh, last week we had the final, final, final top 50 sign off where we presented the uh, final draft to the two editors, Kev Turner and Glenn Freeman, and said, right, you have the final authority over Autosport these days. Do you approve this list? We had a few people circled as particularly contentious, a few groups of drivers that could have moved up or down, and we basically presented arguments from passionate detractors and advocates for Kevin Glenn to judge. They made a few final tweaks, and then the uh, top 50 was declared sorted. Jack Cousins' is, uh, uh, plea for moving one drivers was particularly well-constructed and thought out. Well, Ooh, who I, was that? We, we'll have to, to find out later well, on the in, the, fi- in the, the podcast. The, the, the top 50 is. You can, you can mention the future. You know, we're not going to run through the whole top 50 in there, so pick out someone. So you can uh, you can mention this case study. It's all about exp- explaining the process. And uh, I'm I'm not adequately prepared to do so because I've been distracted by flashing lights on a certain fellow guest's uh, jumper at the moment. But uh, so in the, in this instance, uh, Gabriele Tarquini was. Uh, Remember him from World Touring Car Championship of. 1987, as uh, Ed and I have been discussing. Um, but in, in this instance, uh, we've, we've got a driver who is over the age of 50, is 56 now. Uh, Tarquini has made it in and is only the third driver across that boundary to have uh, made the list, which is quite something. That's on the back of a very impressive year, I argued successfully and that's the third uh, driver in history isn't it it's, in in the history of all sports top 50 yeah as well as nigel mansell for his masterful 2009 grand prix masters uh, season yeah that was yeah. after the first grand prix i think that was a bit earlier wasn't it 2005 2005, 2005 yeah. Yeah. yeah i think i think 2005 i was in charge of way back way back then so that's uh, that's one but of course tarquini yeah world touring car cup champion and, and a, a fine performer but it's uh I mean that, that's a good example because why why was he on the side? I mean because I, I remember him appearing as a as there's always this little clutch of drivers just on the outside that get sent around with these lists. So yeah. why why did he miss out and how did how did Jack manage to bully his way to getting his getting he, him back in? Here's a good example of the process actually because after the on the first list I think he was definitely somewhere in the forty to fifty range, and that would have probably been before he'd clinched the title, I wouldn't. Know. Yes, he was. Le- he actually had a bigger point at that point, I think, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he he made his case less convincing <laughs> for the final round of yeah. the season. But yeah, I think partly the slight slump towards the end of the season 
dropped him down in people's eyes. That a lot of the time, what people are arguing most passionately about isn't the individual driver, but it's the championship they represent. Well, that's a big part of it, isn't it? Absolutely. And things like the balance of performance and uncertainty about which the best cars were in WTCR, that all played into that. And there were quite a few people voting for Tarqueen to move downwards. Not necessarily to go out of the top 50, but when you're throwing in 27 people into this equation a few downward movements and a few upwards movements for other people. I think he ended up 53rd for a while. And then Jack very passionately advocated with some really good historical comparisons, quite how strong WTCR field was this year compared to other years that other world touring car champions had got into the top 50. And um, thanks to him, Tarquini made it back in. Well, it's a great argument, isn't it? It shows that hopefully the uh, the system vaguely works. The thing I always like to do is because it's very easy when you send a 50 round for people just to declare, oh, they should be in, they should be in, they should be in. But always... I think you probably do the same. I've always tried to do, do that thing. If you say, if you want to try and argue someone in, can you at least make a vague attempt to argue someone else out? Because you've got to have 50 drivers in the top 50. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite go. Um, I'm a nicer human being than you, so I didn't That's say don't, don't pick on an individual and bully them out of the top 50 <laughs> to get your friend in. But I did say anyone who wanted their driver back in had to make a really well-argued case for it at that point. Yeah, I, I think generally when we're getting feedback as well, there's certain drivers who many people are arguing up and then equal number are arguing down. I think at that point you figure you've probably got them in the right position. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's all a question of opinion. In fact, that question about the relative merits of championships, it's quite it's a kind of three-dimensional problem, isn't it? Because everyone can put different championships in kind of rough order of where they are in terms of, you know, every, most drivers, if you give them the chance, they'd be F1 drivers, wouldn't they? That's that's what they set out to do. That's certainly those with, with single-seater backgrounds. Um, I imagine there's probably quite a few drivers in rallying who probably wouldn't go for that, but you've kind of got Formula One and then WRC is up there and World Endurance Championships you know, and gradually working your way down. But then you've got within those actual championships you've got how competitive they are how representative the 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 season was in terms of because we've got loads of championships with performance balancing and this that and the other well, so the, that, that's yeah, the performance balance is a really important point i think more and more with things like gt and touring car racing taking that sort of format reverse grids in different series complicates things and then you throw in something well running order in rallying is a big part then you throw in something like nascar where now it's got a format where drivers, once they've won a race, don't have to push that hard for a large chunk of the season. They can focus on preparing for the playoffs. You might get, as you got this year, a champion who didn't look like a contender for much of the season. So we have we have set ourselves a completely impossible and ultimately pointless task in trying to compile this top 50. But we, we do it because we enjoy it and readers clearly enjoy it. But you cannot factually, accurately, statistically say these are the best 50 drivers in the world. But but what this it does year, is it. Uh, I've said this before on the podcast when we talk about this sort of thing. It's about the journey, isn't it? And what this is, it's a nice it's a nice way to review the year as well. And there'll be loads of drivers who people won't know much about because everybody's got their own areas of interest of what they follow. So hopefully people look at the list and think, oh, who's this guy? What what have they done? And hopefully it'll draw people to people's attention a, a little bit more. Those who've uh, who've excelled. That's that's a great thing about having such an expansive range of correspondences. I think we'll have a fairly holistic view of what's going on through, you know, whether it's through uh, subbing news stories or what's going on in a mag. We get a rough idea, but you know, for example, there's well, there's one one driver, uh, Drew Thor, who's in our, you know, his his main merit for being in there is about a uh, uh, a spa qualifying lap that was eliminated for illegality, but. Um, overall his performance you know that that takes someone with real paddock in-depth knowledge to argue that case that's why um, we've got people like gary watkins on the staff isn't it exactly exactly and it's also i'm sure a point we'll we'll uh, contest with a lot is uh why in this year's top 50 uh 
Oitanek is the highest rated rally driver as opposed to champion Sebastian Ogier. And sometimes you have to step back from from what you see and think and go, you know, our correspondent is is paid to be in the paddock, speak to these drivers and get get the hard numbers and the data. And then, you know, as much as you might personally disagree with it, you have to go with what they say because first hands, you know, they, they know what's going on much better than we do because they're so much closer to to the centre. Well, before we delve into some of the controversies, just last point I'd like to make is it, it is fascinating how well this is this has worked over the years. I was, I was here when we first started doing it in two thousand and two, and I thought it was a great idea at the time. And it's it, the amount of churn you get in these lists as well shows how transient everything in motorsport is. That you can be in there one year, nowhere near it the next year, and you get drivers disappearing for five years from it and then reappearing, and you get some who are in there constantly, some who are. I mean, we've had some amazingly large large gaps of people and yeah people vanish from from the upper reaches and don't come back for a few years so it, it tells you a lot about the quality of drivers there are in the in the world actually and yeah that point about how you balance it up because of course you've got junior racing as well that's the other big challenge you've got what you might call destination professional series and then how do you rate an f3 driver who's on the up it's uh it's it's a fascinating way to look at the season so let's look into a little bit more detail. Matt Hugh, where's the big controversy? What are the talking points that are worth drilling down into? Um, I think... I, I, th- I should say that Lewis Hamilton is number one and I, I don't think there's, there wasn't much dissent. Was there any dissent on that? No, I think, no, I think it's very obvious. And, yeah, people are, people are more than welcome to write in or you know, respond with a convincing counter-argument, but it would have to be quite some way to, you know, to knock Hamilton off the top. He's been you know, he's been operating at his very best and comfortably comfortably ahead of his, you know, performances where in previous years he's won our driver of the year. So yeah, I think that was a no brainer. Uh yeah, I think the particularly contentious one is probably Tanak, as as I said, going above uh, champion Oje. Oit Tanak is fourth, uh, and he finished third third in the points. So the points table would say he's statistically the third best driver of his respective series. And then uh, champion Sebastian Oje finished uh uh, seventh in our list, despite uh, despite taking what's arguably by the end of the season the fourth fastest car, the Fiesta, um, to the title, and he was also at points deficit to Thierry Neuville heading in heading into the last round. I think the reason that's contentious uh, that Tannock's ahead is because you can make a case that for the final three rounds of the series, where he was putting himself in the uh, in the title hunt after I think f- uh, three consecutive wins and four overall uh, rally wins. I think there's a case to be made, a valid one, that his three retirements or incidents were all caused by him uh, rather than car failure. So I think in uh, in Rally GB, he took too much speed over a jump and uh, big front end impact. And then his uh, radiator broke. So that was one retirement. Uh, he got a puncture on uh, Rally Australia, which is unfortunate, but, you know, he, he made a massive, uh, massive corner cut. Um and so I think, yeah, you can you can equally attribute those to the rise and falls of a season or driver error. Whereas you'd say that perhaps Sebastian Oje has been more consistent, hasn't had the huge peaks and troughs. Um, he's been more consistent and delivered a title. Uh, so I think, it's, yeah, it's where, where you draw the line. Tanak's someone who goes out to just eviscerate the opposition, whereas Oje is probably, you know, maybe more of a 95% driver. So it's, it's where you equate the two. No, very much so. You can make an argument that Tanak should have been champion, could have been champion. So it's it's all about the perspective. Do you have a feeling on this, Matt? On well, the Tanak issue, I actually was one of the advocates for putting him 
in front. I think the sheer speed he's shown this year. Um, our correspondent David Evans made quite a good case for how a lot of those retirements were impacts that cars that weren't a Toyota could have taken. So that's a bit of car fragility that Tanak had that others hadn't. And I, I was, I was kind of the news desk link man for quite a few World Rally Championship rounds this year. So I was getting a fair bit of info from the service park from, from David. And the amount of times when Tanak was destroying the field, okay, he was trying to push harder than everybody else, but he was a title outsider by that point. He'd had bad luck early in the season. He had nothing to lose by absolutely charging, whereas everyone else was driving with points in mind. So I think he was in a different position. And uh, when he was nominated as number one in the rallying list, and when for a little while, um, to give you an insight into the debate process, he was second on this list. And then as, as the debate went on, he got knocked down behind a couple of others. But Tanak being second overall for the year would have been a result that would please me quite a lot, personally, I think. For podcast listeners, we've got David Evans, our rallies editor, and Colin Clark, voice of rally, as he's, as he's known on Twitter, coming in to do a WRC podcast, which will be out in a few days, uh, where I'm sure they will have a an interesting debate out of that, about this uh, this whole Tanner versus Ogier prospect. So that, that's something we'll be revisited on a, another podcast. But it's it's a great example of how it's not just the championship table; it's 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 overall the performance factoring and everything that, that we try and we try and bring into things. What about some of the other controversial positionings? Is anyone else going to flag up something they don't like or that was particularly difficult? In fact, that whole top five area once once Hamilton was uncontested first. But everybody else in the top five was was a proper argument, I think. Um, well, I think this is reflected in the fact that, because obviously the, the ranking of the F1 drivers is related to what I was doing, my top 10 drivers, etc. Lewis Hamilton was number one. And, it, you know, if that was a race, the next best on the list was a lap down, basically. It was, there was quite, I mean, there were some very good performances, but Hamilton was so strong that there was quite a big, there's, there's a gap for somebody to pile into, basically. Well, when we started this process, uh, Ed, you were one of the most organised with getting us information and content and that sort of thing. But right at the start, you said, I've got number one and second to tenth, I probably can't tell you for two months yet. And that was with two thirds of the F1 season season gone. Max Verstappen pulled himself up a lot at the end from where he was initially. Um, Fernando Alonso's high placing in this top 50 got some really vociferous opposition from some parts of the debating team. Other people were absolutely pro that, given what he's achieved in the McLaren that has been so bad this season. With well, the, and it's the World Sports Car Championship yeah. outings for Toyota. I mean, he's, he's brilliant at Le Mans. Yeah. Um, Gary Watkins um, argued in a lot of detail that Alonso was making such a contribution to the WEC program. And even though it can be harder to, to untangle exactly what each driver brings to a, a three-driver per car lineup, um, Gaz's evidence for Alonso was was very compelling. So when he ended up back in second on the list, apart from the little part of me that was uh, shedding a tear for Tanak, I, I didn't feel too much need to argue against that. Push comes to shove. It's a driver who's excelled in Formula One and who's leading the World Endurance Championship and who won Le Mans. Yeah. Anyone who watched his, you know, uh, his safety car restart at Le Mans or didn't fall asleep for the night, night, uh, night stint as well. Sort of those were real standout moments. He acquitted himself superbly. Arguably, you could say, you know, by contrast to Formula One, that Toyota has got a total monopoly at the top of LMP1. But you know, they they they've managed to beat themselves in the past. So uh, for him to deliver that result was was excellent. And I think there's sort of not only is he was he after the triple crown, but it's sort of a romantic notion of drivers competing in more than one series. So that that I think he's the only person in our top fifty whose ranking is out of sync with their individual series rankings because obviously he's got F1 and World Endurance Championship combined. If, if we move on to uh, another controversial point we don't have to go much further down the list it's only to number three um Jean-Éric Verne 
is in there. Uh, Formula E champion, of course. Um, and we should say most of that Formula E season was in the 2018 calendar yes, year, yeah, wasn't it? There's only one race. Just one race in yeah. 2017. And that's why I'm I'm particularly torn on this issue. Um, but I had a quick conversation with Glenn Freeman yesterday about it. And I think one of the things that you you have to bear in mind when you look at his place in being so high up is that he did have a phenomenal season, but it's not in people's minds because his title was sealed in July. We've had five months of doing nothing. Uh, Formula E's obviously kicked off again now, but um, you, it's very difficult to think of him that high up when really he's not been doing anything for, for that many months. But there's you know a, a perfectly valid case, I think, actually for him to be high up on the order. This uh, yeah, I think I would completely agree. It goes both ways. So uh, Max Verstappen, who we ranked fifth, it's easy to forget how terrible, sort of terrible his, his, his heart was. Yeah, until yeah. until he got his uh, until he sort of engaged from Canada onwards, you know, and finished. Obviously, he had the Mexico win at the end of the season. I think yeah, works both ways. He's perhaps more prominent in our minds at the moment. Uh, but he's an interesting case for Stappen because he could have after six races, I'd have said no way would he be second in my top ten. But because for the rest of the season he was so outstanding consistently. Uh, won those two races and he was the only guy who was kind of achieving consistent Hamilton level for much of the season that's that allowed him to to kind of climb to climb to that level which uh, it's, it's interesting trying to balance up that kind of time bias if you want to put it that way what you say when doing the rankings at the end of the season the end of the season doesn't count double and you've got to try and divide it up over the season I imagine was there fair, did you have people arguing for Stappen the other way not too much by by the end of the season he had over enough races, he'd been impressive enough that we didn't get too many too many complaints about that. So that was that was a relief. The um, the other you know the other big arguments were really down to were we rating certain series too high or too low. So after we'd got past this second, third, fourth debate, most of the fury or delight was over where things like Formula E ranked over, where supercars ranked over, where NASCAR ranked. Uh, World Rallycross, Johan Christofferson was at one point. Top ten at one point, people were arguing down to the forties. There was such um, disparate views on how strong World Rallycross had actually been. You certainly couldn't argue against the job Christopherson had done this year. He's been absolutely extraordinary. And he but, did win Scandinavian touring cars yeah, as well. Yeah, you know, he's he's always been so versatile. Um, I can remember. I think was it Superstars? Was it called the Italian series that he was yeah, involved yeah. in as well? I really like the Superstars series. Actually, <laughs> that was an amazing grid, wasn't it? Most of them in world touring cars now. I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, Christopherson had, had a mighty season and, the, and there were some people who were saying he should therefore without question be top 10 and others who were just like, well, the VW is by far the best car. Uh, the people he's beating, are, you know, many of them are in the sort of twilight of their career as such. And so like, like Matt said earlier, if, if you've got people saying a driver should be top 10 and other people saying he should be 40 something and they end up 20 something, that is probably about the right outcome when you're balancing out nearly 30 people's views. I know I was certainly one of those ones that argued him down a bit from the, from the initial, from the initial list. Very good driver. I mean, certainly I've, I've got, don't have a big problem with where he is in 25th place. I thought you were about to say something, Matt, you, you're about to offer some profound, what else are we talking talking about the the ranking of series best IndyCar driver Scott Dixon the champion of course in sixth place IndyCar's always has got quite a, a strong following of people who always very passionately argue about it so you know you could argue Dixon winning a very competitive championship you could argue he could be higher was he was he a tricky one to slot in so he's behind 
the lead WRC driver who didn't win the championship, Oik Tanak. He's behind John Eric Vern, the lead Formula E driver. And he's behind a driver in Fernando Alonso who's partly in there for sports car antics. Oh, certainly the, the IndyCar advocates were very angry about the Formula E champion appearing above the IndyCar <laughs> champion. That was a massive bone of contention. Um, it's one of the reasons, so one, one of the things we do with this, particularly for the online version, is commission a lot of extra content, um, Q&As with engineers, with drivers. And in this case, for, for Jean-Eric Verne, for the online section, I asked Alex Kalanelkas, our Formula E writer, to do a little opinion piece on just why we'd ranked Formula E drivers this highly. Because obviously, Alex is in the Formula E paddock. He's very convinced of the series merits other people on the staff are still very skeptical about the racing the format of the championship the quality of the field um so we wanted alex to yeah fight the corner for formula e a little bit in in the top 50 feature which i think he's done very impressively um but yeah and actually it, i think formula is quite easy to argue i think moment. it is now as well not the definitely. quickest cars in the world but it's a very specialized series high quality drivers you know Vern won it in a independent team you should remember it's also worth adding that although it's uh, a, a small factor in our rating, he also was very impressive in the LMS this season. Yeah, three wins in the LMS, yeah. yeah. And he did win Le Mans on the road. Yeah, and well, he would have been he would have been champion with his teammates had he not missed the first round, which I think was Monza for a, a New York E Prix clash. Yeah, so again, multidiscipline driving. Actually, multidiscipline drivers have, all, have historically been able to do quite well in this this list because it does give you a. A, a nice boost if you can if you can show you can do it in multiple series i'm not going to mention a particular driver because they ended up out of the top 50 but there was a moment where somebody was being argued into the top 50 because they've done two series and the correspondence for each of those series assumed that driver had done really well in the other one <laughs> and when they compared notes and realized that driver hadn't actually done what either of them thought in the other series both of them were like uh oh, they need to be in the top 50 <laughs> that's always good isn't it when you uh yeah you could be careful about assuming certain things i mean Another contentious point is the positioning of NASCAR drivers. Now, we've had NASCAR drivers up in the top five in the past. Uh, the top NASCAR driver, you have to look all the way down to 27th Joey Logano. I'd like to ask uh, the Mats first, why why Logano was rated highest of NASCAR drivers? Because as, as Matt Beer, you pointed out earlier, he didn't really look like a contender for much of the season. So why has he jumped someone like Harvick, who was just dominant in the in the midpoint of the season. Lugano played the system very effectively and you've got to you've got to judge how you've got to judge what what drivers need to do to win their series. And once he'd got his win in the bag, um having discussed this with our US correspondents and the people who followed this in depth all year, their feeling was that Penske and Lugano played it very cleverly to go, it's the playoffs that are going to matter. Let's focus our, ourselves and our equipment on those tracks. And his execution of the races and the battles, his um, was it was it was excellent NASCAR racecraft. I think if you took uh-huh. it to any other series, it wouldn't it would probably get him disqualified. But he won two of the last four races, didn't he? Including the winner takes all finale under yeah. the most pressure. You know, absolutely. And and with a car that had not been as quick as those dominant three for a large part of the season. So in the end, that was. Uh, that seemed a relative no-brain to me. I liked the underdog charge at the end story, but I do think it's interesting that the whole NASCAR pack is rated quite a lot lower this yeah. year than they often have been in the top 50. For me, the problem I have with NASCAR is it's become quite amorphous in terms of the shape of the season. I, I didn't necessarily mind the chase coming in when it originally came in because there is a tradition of playoffs in American sport, but then the stage races and the qualification by winning one race to get into the chase and then the elimination format in the chase, it, it makes it quite a difficult series to to follow and to get a feel for who's who's doing well last year we had martin truex jr at number eight 
Um, he was obviously the top NASCAR driver, whereas this year it's Jerry Lagana, who's only 27th. Um, and I, I think that's a fair reflection on the series. So, you 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 know, some people might be surprised that Jerry Lagana has come out on top. But the fact is that all of them are much lower ranked this year. And that's because their seasons hasn't been as good. Truex was by phenomenal. Far phenomenal last, last season. season fantastic whereas this year I think it pales in comparison his season so you know that's a fair reflection I pat ourselves on the back for doing doing the right thing in the ratings by that I've seen a few people commenting about the fact you've got an IndyCar driver in Scott Dixon 6 21 places ahead of the NASCAR champion could that I mean obviously in terms of auto sports tradition it is a, a kind of road racing focus mag we've always covered oval racing but you could argue that some people suggest there's a there's an inbuilt bias there. Uh, possibly, but I think particularly this year, where because of our, our new circumstances, the team contributing was even bigger than usual, and for uh, actually a much wider set of backgrounds as well, we did have more diverse input into this and more of those things. Yeah, you can possibly say there might be a a a tradition of single seater fans among autosport, although. You know, in my case, it's it's Formula Ford or nothing, really. And I think the rallycross contingent in autosport is huge these days as well. Um, but I think I do think those factors get averaged out. And like last year, Truex in the top 10 after a season in which he came through as this amazing underdog and snatched a title being, you know, unquestionably the fastest person through the year. Um, that was quite a that was quite an obvious result. Whereas this year, there wasn't as much to choose between the, the top drivers. Bush and Harvick and Truex dominated um, between them for a large way of the season. But the fact there were three drivers doing that equally rather than one setting themselves apart, that does pull everyone down a bit in an average ranking. And then they all managed to lose the championship. So I, I don't feel too guilty about NASCAR slipping back. And still, even with the NASCAR drivers being where they were, there were some very furious people about how high the NASCAR drivers were. The uh, The Australian contingent um, was certainly not impressed that we ranked several NASCAR drivers above the supercars. Uh, title rivals McLaughlin and Van Gisberg in which I can sort of see that point supercars was p- particularly epic between those two this year and, and in Scott Dixon's case he's now a five-time IndyCar champion I think there's a lot of merit to argue that 2018 was his best of those championships as well so he, yeah he should be right in the order and we have had NASCAR drivers well up there ahead of IndyCar drivers plenty of times in the in the past as well it kind of shows how different seasons they're always a different thing aren't they in terms of championships this is this is a kind of argument about the competitiveness of the the front of the series and what drivers are how far drivers are able to stand out etc but we've got now alexander rossi's 12th place so second indycar driver there willpower 21st place so what's that that's three indycar drivers before the first nascar driver yes yeah that is well indycar's a lot about title rivals it does say a lot about how indycar's kind of built itself back up over, over recent years well i think that the indycar the strength and depth in the indycar field is very strong now i don't i don't follow the argument that it's as strong as f1 i think i 20 years ago as a teenage naive excitable champ car fan i'd make that case every day but um i don't think you can push it that hard but i do think it's got great strength and depth you have to go a long way down the field to find somebody who shouldn't really be there um you know winning the indy 500 with how many weeks and how much work and, and how much goes into that. I think that's a major achievement for willpower. And and Rossi with a lot less experience uh, and a team with a lot less recent title winning pedigree. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um ran Dixon extremely close to the title. So you've got you've got three drivers standing out in, in quite different ways there. How about some of the tin top representatives? We've mentioned them a bit, Jack Cousins. This is your area of expertise. The one I'd really like to pick out is uh Rene Rast up in fifteenth place. 
Um, now, Top DTM driver and ahead of DTM champion Gary Puffett. Ras didn't, well, didn't beat Ivan Mercedes' driver to the title. Um, if you look at his season, really, yeah, third in DTM after winning the title last year, still a, a good finish. Um, no real standouts in anything else that, that he did. But I think his performances in particular, particularly the second half of the DTM season where Audi got his act together a bit, um, he was he was just head and shoulders above the rest. Um, I will try and do some some quick maths in my head. Uh, but Matt, Q and I were both at Brands Hatch for the, the start of the second half of the season. Uh, he just he just found a way to to wring speed out of that yeah. that car that no one else in the Audi contingent could. Well, I, I, it's not unfair to say that Audi probably channeled a lot of their efforts behind True, him. But yeah. you know, which way does that come? Did they channel his efforts because he was the best and put them in the prime position? Exactly. I think uh, as well. You, you and I both remember a moment when I, when I put a question to Dieter Gas, who had head of Audi Motorsport, to ask. Uh, simply why why Puffett was so much quicker and it's just because his consistency and you know the way he was able to construct qualifying and put him in that prime position for for the rest of the weekend and let's not forget although he did come third in the championship he of course missed um uh I, well, was it a race at the Lausitz ring yeah because After he had just an shunt. enormous yeah. shunt yeah so you know perhaps with that he, he would have been higher up still um and likewise as much as we're arguing Rene rust up you have to you have to say Puffett probably not only had the most competent car in the Mercedes C class, but led to believe one of the well, easier to drive as well, more yeah, forgiving. Yeah, certainly the case this year. And um, the the point I was going to make on on Rast, he when we when the series headed the Brands Hatch, he was ninety nine points behind Puffett. He ended the season with a run of six victories and fell ended up uh, just four points short of taking the title. So hugely impressive turnaround. Rast's also one of those drivers who was, he, I remember when he first appeared in the in the top 50, which would have been 2016, he wasn't a driver that, were, that immediately leapt to mind that year. Um, and I'm saying this is a good example of why, why the top 50 can be quite good at picking up these drivers. That was when he was uh, racing Audi GT, he briefly appeared in the DTM, did quite well in LMP2, but there was no sort of headline achievement, but he was 27th in, in 2016. And then now he's at the point where he's the best driver in a hugely competitive professional series so it's one of the it's, it's quite a, a, you look back at that and you think well that's actually quite good that we are picking up on these drivers who are excelling perhaps a little bit off the map and I think as well you have to look at the position of DTM it's done quite a good job within itself of getting rid of you know the XF1 people who are using it as a twilight of their careers I mean yes there are XF1 drivers in it but you'd still say they're operating at their prime and as, as Jack Cousins know, it takes from his uh, taxi laps, it takes an awful lot to get the best out of one of those cars. How about some of the other touring car drivers? Mentioned briefly the uh, Australian supercars drivers, Scott McLaughlin and Shane Van Gisbergen. They've also got BTCC represented in there. That might be a contentious point, though, of course, because we've only got one BTCC driver in the top 50 this year. And it's a man who didn't even finish in the top three of the championship in Ash Sutton. Um, but I think... On a on a similar point to uh, to Rast, Sutton's season didn't start particularly strongly, but once the Subaru was sorted, and you know there'll be uh, various conspiracy theories about why that may or may not have been the case, um, but he won more races than anyone else uh, on his way to fourth place overall. Well, BTCC is an interesting example, though, isn't it? Because it, it's so 
performance balanced. And for example, Colin Turkington won the championship. We had Dick Bennett's on, on, on a Macau preview podcast and he briefly touched on touring cars. And obviously the rear wheel drive BMWs, they're heavy cars. He'd argue that, well, it's impossible to win many races if you're, if you're in a BMW. And what Turkington did was play the system perfectly and emerged as champion. So did he have a harder task than, than Sutton and Tom Ingram, obviously in an independent team uh, with Speedworks. So, You've you've kind of got three drivers on slightly different footings there in a championship that's distorted in a way. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I was just going to say that Sutton delivered the drive of the season for me, which is uh, in the St Mary's uh, Trophy at Goodwood, but uh, I should stress that plays no role in deciding our uh, outcome of the top 50. Uh, and, but it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because touring cars, Jack, is in many ways, it's a kind of national or regional enterprise isn't it rather than, I mean there is a world touring car uh, championship for TCR cars effectively which Tarquini won but then you've got a lot of these national series BTCC DTM Australian supercars and some of them are quite they're, they're sort of hermetically sealed I mean, DTM's got nothing to do with anything else really same with same with supercars in Australia not in a bad way but it, they're they're very very hard to compare one another so that's where you have to make a very clear decision about what level is the front of btcc out versus supercars versus tcr the world championship absolutely and that's why as as frustrating as uh, as some correspondents might find certain rankings in the order that's why we're very fortunate that we have you know correspondents on each different category that know their field inside out and are able to argue the merits of scott mclaughlin and, and shane van gisbergen making the list where okay if it was in Australia they might be first and second and you might have 25 supercars drivers in in your top 50 but this is a more uh global sort of look at uh racing racing drivers and you need that input from everyone to to find a definitive list that is still going to cause controversy but talking controversy Junior single-seaters, Matt Beer, always a bit tricky. George Russell's out there in 10th place after his F2 win. No great surprise, but Formula 3 is an interesting one. Yeah, I th- in some ways we benefit there because uh, Marcus Simmons is, I-, I would say, the foremost junior single-seater expert around in, in the English media. Um, and But he's always one of, the, one of the most generous when it comes to the top 50. He'll passionately argue his drivers in, but then he'll go, but F3 is the third level. These are junior drivers. They're unproven. They shouldn't be above this benchmark which is usually really somewhere in the in the low 30s mid mid 40s and that's where Tictum Vips and Schumacher um have ended up Tictum obviously the big leap um via the sheer dominance of his Macau performance at the end of the season um GP3 tra- champion Antoine Hubert isn't in it um general feeling among everyone was that, that that field hasn't been strong enough overall the people who were perhaps most highly rated coming into that championship this year have disappointed so there wasn't a huge amount of controversy over None of the GP th- GP three field making it in. Um, I think our discussions handled the hmm, controversy is probably the best word over Mick Schumacher's season. Well, you certainly couldn't argue with the scale of his dominance at times, but there were elements that people raised question marks over. And over the balance of the year, when you add in uh, Macau and the outings in other categories, um, Tictum. Yeah, ended up ahead by quite a few positions. I think that's absolutely fair enough. Macau has actually become quite potent in the top fifty in recent years, hasn't it? Because it's it's such a big race 
to, well, to win and also Tickton won it in such time. I mean, the race was dominated by Sophia Fersh's crash, but on track it was dominated by by Tickton. We, we, those who listened to the preview podcast would have heard he was pretty confident going in, but he absolutely made good on that confidence. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, you could, you could look at Macau influencing this list and go, you're just doing that because it's November, you remember it when you're making your decisions. Um, but the flip side, then what I think is accurate, is look at the circuit. Look at what they're taking on. Look at the people coming back into Formula 3. Look at the pressure on those front-running drivers going into that event, knowing they've got one shot on that Sunday afternoon in this incredibly difficult circuit with this slip-streaming monster pack behind them. That's an, that's an event it's absolutely fair to put massive waiting on. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll frown heavily at anyone who disagrees. I was going off to fight, but that would be pathetic. <laughs> and I think I think we're looking at it based on performance as well because you know last year Tickton also won the Macau Grand Prix but it was slightly fortuitous because he you know he led from 200 yards before the before the checkered flag after a crash so I think you know t- uh, Tickton's high rating is is a reflection so not only obviously his Macau win was probably the headline but certain things that at Spa when he came from tenth on the grid to win how he just was the class of the field at Silverstone you know he has stitched together a great campaign it's probably fair to say Schumacher's upturn in form flustered Tickton particularly in qualifying but you know I think he's he's had a very impressive season and rightly deserves to be in our top 40. And how about some of the the kind of more unexpected names that are in there I always look to See, there's, there's a bunch of names in there that I guess just about any motorsport fan would say, yeah, they'll probably be in there. Then you look at it down, you've got someone like, well, Jensen Button re-entered uh, this year after winning Super GT, but his teammate, uh, Noki Yamamoto, uh, is in there in a much, much higher position. He's, where is he? He's 26th, so one place ahead of Joey Logano, and he might be a driver who whose name doesn't ring a bell for, for people. This is, this is my absolute favourite part about the top 50. Definitely. I think um, yeah, when you're running this project, you have to kind of let go of thinking about people's reactions to the outright order because in the end, that's going to come down to a bit of maths and a bit of democracy and a bit of vibes. But you have to think of it as who are 50 people that we really want to tell good stories about this year, whose performances, whether that mean whether they're ranked 26th or 31st or 22nd, what new information can we share with people about these drivers who they might not have uh, read much about, might not be aware of through the season? And that's where commissioning these little extra bits, the insight pieces, the what was their best lap of the season, the little sidebars that we add, that's been so much fun to do because you get to find out things about drivers you had no idea about before. And it's always, I always, as a, when I wasn't so involved in this process and was just reading it from the other side of the office, I always found it massively educational. So we really tried to bring that approach to it this year. And, Obviously, there's a, a lot of Formula One drivers in there, but when we were looking for what extra elements to add in in the content, it was mostly the the non F1 drivers where we were very heavily going to those correspondents and saying, "Tell us more about these drivers. Why is this person ranked here? What can you what can you say about their greatest moments and and your instinct for why their performance was so strong?" Um, Yamamoto, um, I like the fact that uh, for our added element on him, we've got. Uh, views on him from Nick Cassidy, who he beats two championships. Cassidy's a name people in Europe know from his F3 days, and he was very highly rated over here. Podium finish at Macau, wasn't he? Yes, Cassidy. absolutely. Um, yeah, we've got Nick Cassidy's view on Yamamoto. We've got Jensen Button's view on Yamamoto in there now as well. Well, Jensen Button's recently said he should be an F1. Absolutely. And, okay, you know, would Yamamoto have been that high up if he won Super GT with someone who wasn't Button as his teammate? 
incredible. They didn't just—they didn't just win Super GT though. He won Super Formula as well. Yeah, and I th- I, that counts for a huge amount. That's a that's a brilliant series with a really high quality field, and yeah, a lot of the names in there are unknown in Europe, but they're incredible Japanese track specialists with a lot of knowledge of that of those machinery and those circuits. So to- well, we should note the Yamamoto is a particularly interesting case because not only is he doing it in a championship in. Uh, well, two championships in Japan that are a little bit disconnected from kind of the, the rest of the world. To my knowledge, he's not he's not one of those drivers who came and did F3 over, over in Europe. He's basically been a, a domestic driver in Japan throughout his career. He's, he's, what, 30 years old. So this this is a guy who the rest of the world hasn't really been exposed to. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, I think as well, I know without wanting to go over ourselves too much, I think you have to look at both the state of both championships and say they're in fine fettle. Um, I would say neither... Or none of the manufacturers have a particular monopoly in Super GT. Both Honda very, and very Lexus difficult are, championships to win yeah. with all uh, with the because they've still got the weight rules and that kind of thing. Yeah, ballast. and very close. And we're not taking anything away from Jensen Button, who's obviously a Formula One world champion, but he's a rookie, and so to enter that level, you know, when with with a co-driver as well, that takes a lot on on Yamamoto's side to sort of balance that pairing out. And um, in uh, over in Super Formula as well, he's uh, he's one with uh, Team Mugen as well. Not you know you expected you know expected Team Toms right at the top. So I think again that's a, a standout performance amongst a very competitive field. How about the number of Formula One drivers? This has been a consistent bone of contention over the years. I think there's 15 in there. Uh, I guess I should direct this to you, to you Matt, because I've obviously provided a ranking of the, the F1 drivers. Um, it's your enormous powers of persuasion. <laughs> well, you have to try and uh, have to try and be persuasive to uh, convince people. Uh, I mean, ultimately, those were the the sort of fifteen names that though, it was a fairly clear top fifteen. The other names didn't really come into it. But how do you balance up F one because it's so overpowering in terms of the interest level and the way it's involved? And you know, for all the fact there's drivers bringing money, most of them are professional drivers and deserve to be there so that that's the the ultimate level of championship argument isn't it that that and i think that when you're being absolutely pragmatic about it that argument is just correct f1 is on a higher level above everything else by just enough percent that you can argue to finish midfield in formula one is still a good as good an achievement as winning certain other championships uh, i say that as someone who doesn't particularly enjoy f1 if i'm absolutely honest it's quite a long way down the list of my favorite series um so as a you know my the fan side of me would uh would probably make the top 10 much less Formula 1 heavy than it is. I don't think it's particularly Formula 1 heavy this year, to be honest. But yeah, you're right. There's 15 Formula 1 drivers in that top 50, but the spread of them, there a couple of them are right down at the foot of it. And in the very low 40s, there's only a handful in the top 10. Um, I think at one point, if you, if you think that Alonso sports car exploits count for quite a lot of his high ranking, in a way, you've got a top four that is only 1.5 Formula One drivers, um, and I'm I'm very pleased about that. I did when when uh, Kevin Glenn asked me and Matt to take over this this project for this year. One of my first thoughts was, how un F1 can uh, can we make it? But you've got to leave that bias um, under your desk, really. And I think it's a good it's a good mindset to take in because it means you're yeah. open to to other things. But you have to come back to what makes sense at the end of it. Just personally, I, I worked the majority of um, F1 weekends on the autosport.com news desk this year, and we do the, the lap-by-lap element of the live commentary we do from this end rather than from the circuit with people like yourself, Ed at the track, chipping in with insight and that sort of thing. And I always enjoyed covering the Class B end of the field for that. Um, my colleagues, Glenn and Ben, usually took the top three, and I'd take seventh backwards. Um, and I felt I got quite a lot of insight with the amount of detail that you're 
you're looking at people in Haas, Force India, Williams, that sort of thing, to see the nuances of their performance when you're doing lap by lap commentary on it. And actually, there's some phenomenal driving going on in the F1 midfield with how competitive and how close that pack behind the top three teams has been. Um, I, I, yeah, I think 15 F1 drivers in, the, in this top 50 is absolutely fair because there's been some yeah, absolutely storming drives for 7th, 8th, ninth place in F1 races this year. Well, there's a couple of drivers high up. Charles Leclerc, ninth, the star rookie, the midfield battler, and Nico Hülkenberg, who was the de facto Class B champion in, in 11th place. So... And they've come through fairly high. We've not been afraid to put people like Raikkonen and Bottas, who've had disappointing seasons overall. Yeah, Raikkonen's has been an improvement, but compared to what you want from that car, it's still a disappointment, really. We've not been afraid to put them in the in the middle of the top 50. There's no, this person's in the top Formula 1 car, they must be high up. Daniel Ricciardo had some amazing highs this year, but he was beaten by Verstappen on raw pace for most of the season so he's he's topped the top 50 twice but to plunge into the plunge that's quite dramatic that to slide slightly into the teens i think is absolutely fair i prefer plunge okay yeah. more dramatic more dramatic is there, is there anything in the f1 people someone would like to have a go at me i think jack cousins I'm, is I'm, is, is winding so, up to land a punch so matt said towards the start of the show that uh we we weren't asked when we were deliberating and making cases for people to um make the cut um, to nominate another driver to drop out. I took it on myself to do that anyway and and questioned the merit of Grosjean being in the top 50. So how would you how would you justify his... You're not the only one to question that. With Grosjean, some terrible blunders this year, uh, particularly in the, fir- I mean, the first part of the year, crashing under the safety car in Baku, inexcusable shunt at the start of the Spanish Grand Prix, crashed pointlessly on his first Q3 run in... Paul Ricard, you know, a, a litany of, of errors that cost a lot of points. However, um, the second half of the season, he picks up dramatically. Uh, he had 16 Q3 appearances in a car that's shooting for one of four places. So he was one of the best qualifiers of the season. Once he'd settled down, he was consistently quicker than Magnussen, who's uh, next to him in the list. Uh, I think it's Magnussen 48th and, Grosjean, and Grosjean 49th. And Grosjean turned in some, some very, very good drives in that. I would say... That Grosjean, it's a question of Grosjean for, let's say, half a season. He always says Hockenheim onwards. He was very strong from and he was really strong. If if he'd put together two halves of the season that were Hockenheim onwards, he'd be right up there in the top 10, as far as I'm concerned. And while the second half of the season doesn't count double, I think the strength of performance he put in, the pace he's got, and I think in terms of the pace Roman Grosjean's got when things are going right, there's no one quicker than, than him. He's as quick as a Hamilton or a Verstappen. I believe, anyway. It's just that he's a, he's erratic. He can be a little bit weak psychologically at times. By his own argument, it was his head he had to sort out, which he did. Um, so I just think it wasn't a balanced season. He didn't score as many points as he should have done, but once he got going, he was stunningly, stunningly good. It's a difficult one because you could look at the final overall, what they got out of the season, and there were a lot of points left on the table, and there were. That's certainly true, but... If you look at it, he was something like 9-3 down to Magnussen in qualifying. He turned around to shade it uh, overall. So I found Magnussen had, had a good season, but Magnussen just couldn't quite live with Grosjean. So that's sort of my my justification. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily, if people say he shouldn't be in there, be too furious with it. But I think you have to, absolutely right to talk about the bad, but you have to look at the good as well. And the bad was really bad, but the good was pretty remarkable, as has always been the case with, with, with Roman Grosjean. A thing I'd like to ask you about, Ed, is the difference between the Force India teammates. So although they're 
separate on our list. So Esteban Ocon's up in 19th and Perez is down in 34th. Uh, obviously that's skewed a bit because, you know, we decide the overall order or we have input for it. But you've got uh, four four F1 drivers between them. Um, obviously, it's easy to look at the points table and see Perez scored more points. And so that's the main basis of my argument. But why why such a big difference between two rather well-paired teammates? No, it's a, it's a good point. I would say that in terms of just the F1 drivers, the 7th to about 13th was very, very close. Uh, you can make an argument for, for any of them. You're absolutely right. Ocon was the quicker Force India driver. The average gap was not big. It was sort of 10th or so. They were very often separated, not by very much, but he did out-qualify Perez a lot of the time. Perez scored more points. However, a big chunk of that was down to the fact that Ocon didn't capitalise on Baku and he could have been ahead of Perez in, in, in Baku. He, it was partly Ocon's fault because he tried to contest a race with Raikkonen on the first lap, which wasn't necessary. We saw how often people kept out of the way of the quick cars. So Ocon plays a part in that. But that cost him that cost him points. And he got disqualified in Austin as well. And he got taken out by Perez in Singapore, although Perez didn't score there because his race unraveled because he had to stop earlier. I, I mean, Perez was a really good performer. He really was. And it, it, there are a few drivers who didn't make it into my top 10 who had a real, it was quite painful to leave out. And Perez was one of them because I, I think he's a really good midfield driver. But I think it was just that, that higher level that Ocon had. And I do think he was objectively the better Force India driver over the course of the year. I mean, you could argue about the gap. Uh, should it be should it be smaller? Um, you know, it, it could easily be. They were quite, they were two ultimately evenly matched teammates, but one of them just had that something a bit more special. But Perez, hey, you know, he's the only non-top three driver to get on the podium uh, in the course of the season. Great driver, Baku. So, yeah, I, I think he's he, he is quite hard done by. And so is Carlos Sainz Jr., who's just a bit ahead of, of Perez as well, I would say. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's my position. But put it this way, it, it I've seen other top 10, some other journalists I respect who've got Perez in them and I I can't dramatically argue with them. It's, it's really small, small margins. You know, if we're talking about Hamilton and uh, Vettel, there being a lap between them in the, if this was in the form of a race, when it comes to that midfield pack, it was nothing. It's uh, you kind of, you, you've almost got Perez following Ocon home three seconds behind, but there just happened to be 10 cars between them. Just because of the standard. That applies very much to the middle of this top 50, to be honest. Once you've got the absolute standouts and then you've got the people at the bottom who have had good seasons but you can't make a truly top 30 case, then you've got a pack where a slight rethink could cost someone 10 or 14 positions because the the margins between everyone in that area are absolutely tiny. It's like if you lose a bit of momentum on an oval. Oh, completely. <laughs> completely, yeah. You have to hope for a debris caution so you can get back up. And so, but, it, but it does actually remind you of how fortunate we are in motorsport. There's so many very, very good drivers operating at high level in good championships around the world. You know, every championship's got these very, very good drivers performing at remarkably well. It's it's amazing how much there is going on when you see it boiled down to a list of 50. And there easily could be a bunch of drivers who we'll talk about in a minute, some of the ones who perhaps could have been in there. It just shows the quality. Well, I think that's a real strength of the top 50 is uh, that we're able to look beyond just the winners and the champions. Some names that really sort of stand out there for me in, in an odd way is sort of uh, Formula 3 driver Yuri Vips in 40th, um, Mike Conway in 20th. Perhaps people who aren't as highly sung about or, you know, we don't hang off their every word quite so much as other drivers, but we managed to look past that and give them a fair rating in the top 50, which is one thing I really like about this process. He's been a guest on the Old Sport podcast as well, so that, that that's a benefit for him. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. He definitely helped him clear his thoughts before Silverstone. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. But it, but it is about 
trying to say, it's what you're always trying to do as a journalist, separate the kind of, the effectively our prejudices, because everyone's got an idea going into a year of where people stack up, but you have to try and focus on the season and who's doing what. For example, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, I was about to disagree with you earlier, but I let you finish your sentence and realise you weren't making the point I thought you were making when you said about Dixon, how many championships he's won. I was about to say, oh, it doesn't matter how many championships he's won, but you said your point was this was probably his best of those championships. So that's quite a good illustration of it. Should we briefly talk about some of the ones who missed out, Matt Beard? There's always that handful. I mean, you, you said there are about 65 drivers on the on the final shortlist, and that's quite familiar. You know, I've done this a few times over the years, um, of the past 13, 14 years, and it, it always seems to kind of shake out at that, that you just have in your mind, right, these are the drivers that have to be in it. Oh, there's about 60, 65 of them. Yeah, I think really a top 70 would be a much um, easier process, but also way less fun. Yeah, but then you'd have, oh, there's another 20 outside the top 70. Well, yeah, true. Keeps going on. And this has, this has taken up enough hours and sleepless nights and stuff in the last two months without making an even bigger list of commissions. Um, I You can make a case for some people to come in who are very high up in their championships. We discussed briefly British touring cars. I think Tom Ingram and Colin Turkington were edged in and out of this top 50 repeatedly as the debate went on. Um, I really liked when we started this process and went to the individual series experts and said, who would you put in this top 50 this year? I loved some of the names that came back. And part of me was like, oh, I've got to get this driver in here. I've got to argue this strongly because I like how left field this is. Um, they, I, they didn't make it, but there you go. In the end, my my favorite world cards that just missed the cut were Nicholas Gronholm from World Rallycross. Um, he hasn't, in results terms, hasn't necessarily been a standout, um, but our Rallycross correspondent, Hal Ridge, put up a fantastic argument for how Gronholm had really come out of his dad, Marcus Gronholm's shadow this year, showing he really uh, had the motivation some people had had questioned a little bit with him previously and what he'd done in, the, in a non-manufacturer project with GRX um, had impressed Hal enormously this year. Um, and considering his teammate was Timothy Mijanov, who was European champion not so long ago, someone who was very highly rated, um, you know, World Rallycross is in a terrible state now. Um, it would be a, but if uh, if Gronholm's team is part of it next year, as I know Marcus Gronholm in, um, intends to do, uh, it'd be lovely to see someone like Nicholas Gronholm get in the top 50 on merit if World Rallycross is strong enough next year. Um, the other one I really liked the argument for was Anton De Pasquale from Supercars, which our Australian correspondent Andrew Van Leeuwen argued for with the vehemence and fury with which he argued for every Supercars drive, which was very entertaining. Um, uh, Andrew's view on that was that De Pasquale, if he didn't make the cut this year, he's bound to make the cut one year because, in, in his words, um, the bloke's the real deal. He was the standout of a very strong rookie crop over there this year. Um, in the end, Gronholm and De Pasquale were probably somewhere around 70th on, on the final list. So they, they definitely didn't make the top 50. But when you're going through this process and you get to see people's advocacy for drivers like that, who even, even working yeah, the majority of the weekends this year, editing people's reports from these different series, you might not, I, I didn't pick up on all these standout drives and stuff. So you learn a lot doing this and, and it opens your eyes to the, like you say, the sheer enormity of talent in motorsport these days. I remember seeing versions with people like Felipe Nazar, who excelled in uh, in IMSA. Colin Braun from IMSA yeah, yeah, was in yeah. there as well. He was he was in there until the final couple of minutes, I think. Actually, um, if he wants to direct any fury at any of uh, his exit, it should be at Gabriele Talquini. <laughs> and his uh, and his late show, yeah. And it, it it's one of those things that often those drivers have the best stories. You talk about telling stories about the, these drivers, and they some of them 
are, are brilliant. Um, just drivers like Ronholm is a great example of just a driver who, unless you're following Rallycross properly, you probably completely passed you by. Oh, absolutely. And I think, like I said, the more we do, tra- we do this on merit, definitely. But the more we can make sure we're we're spotlighting a few people and telling a few extra stories along the way, the better. Definitely, I think that's that's the kind of um, moral good of the top fifty as well as just being great fun to do and something the readers get very excited about hmm. and angry. No, and, and rightly so. I also think again the the thing about this process is stronger balancing. So you know we we bring to like sort of drivers who we necessar- not haven't necessarily sort of. Um, been competing at the front of the field but equally we don't get carried away too much by headline results so the one that stands out as someone who was in in the running but didn't make the top 50 was 2005 winner overall Sebastian Lowe because of his fabulous um, rally Spain victory and for being the only other person to win in rallycross this year mm. no very much so yeah I remember he was uh, did he get did he edge his way in on, on a draft at one stage he was definitely in the 40s for quite a while yeah there's, there's, there's so many drafts that's the uh the, uh, the the great thing with it, isn't it? And you have so many of these uh, different versions. And actually, I would say, you know, the final list, I don't think there's anyone. Do you say it's 27 correspondents? Yes, it was this year. I don't think there's anyone who would agree 100% with the final list because it's nobody's personal list. It's a, it's as democratic as it can possibly be. Uh, no, I mean... That's in, what, what you end up with. In the end, um, Matt and I ran the process and I think we'd argue with probably half the positions that they've ended up, if it was down to our own personal choice from what we've seen and, and read and understood this year well hopefully uh plenty of people listening to this will will now understand a little bit more of our methodology even if they just and i imagine just about everybody listening to this would have a different version of the the top 50 but hopefully it's it's enjoyable if you do want to get in touch with us at autosport our twitter account we'll have, have various discussions about the uh top 50 turning up uh, turning up on there the 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 top 10 the, the the final part of the list was revealed on the day this podcast uh, is released uh, and also the magazine's out with uh, with the, with the uh, in-depth coverage of that so you can look through that and try and understand some more of our reasoning and some of the stories we're telling about these drives and get in touch with us all sorts of means you can go onto facebook uh, i'm sure there'll be stuff on instagram you could even email us in front of the pages of the magazine there's, a, there's an email address you could, you could even write a letter you, you which could, is uh, approach oh. me on trains between Devon and Richmond. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. With a flashing Christmas jumper, that's definitely me. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Particularly once we're out of this time of year, once we're into January. Yeah, I definitely. wouldn't put it past you to wear a flashing Christmas jumper in the <laughs> in, the, in the middle of uh, in the middle of the year. To be quite honest, and, uh, even though it, even though it would be uh, much warmer, which would be a, a strange decision. But yeah, we'd like to hear from people and hear some of the arguments. It's always fascinating as well to see some of the drivers responding to it. It's it, it's nice to see. And we were blowing our own trumpet there, but it is nice to see that drivers are interested in where they're in, in where they're put, and you get the some of them being happy where they are, some of them being a bit disappointed if they're <laughs> maybe maybe not appearing. Well, Jean Eric Verne, when he was on the podcast earlier this year, talking about how he not only wanted to top the Formula E drivers list, but this top fifty as well. You know, there's a lot of good social media engagement from from drivers, and it carries a lot of uh, influence, which is great to see. Yeah, no, we certainly appreciate that from drivers, and it's it's nice to know that it's uh, it actually matters to them. And I'll tell you what, when when Jerry Vern said he was going to, he wanted to be number one, I thought, well, that's very ultimate. I didn't think didn't think he'd come out as number three, but I think actually you, you sit down and look at it and think, yeah, it's hard to hard to disagree too much with that. But please, if you disagree with us, let us know, and we'll uh, we'll we'll argue, uh, continue to argue our case for uh, for the rest of time, probably. Well, do head to autosport.com. Uh, all latest news from the world of motorsport on there our plus subscriber area and of course the top 50 is to be found there with 
masses of content on there you, stories about drivers q and a's insight from their rivals everything you could possibly want to read there autosport magazine out now the christmas double issue contains the top 50 among a vast amount of other stuff matt q in particular you'll have been uh work well work at the time of recording actually working through the uh the uh the double issue there's uh, plenty of content there to keep you going for a couple of weeks and do check out sister titles f1 racing magazine out monthly and motorsport news out every wednesday and if you fancy a flutter download the pit stop betting app thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another auto sport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.